Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 if you haven't already done so. We're spending the month of May in a series called Discipleship 101. This is part two. We're going to have four parts. I haven't titled these anything other than part one, part two, part three, part four. Uh, but the content, I think, will speak for itself. So the reason, here's the reason why, if this is your first Sunday with us during this, this topic, because we're in the book of Acts right now, our, as our regular textual uh, preaching, but why are, we, why are we doing a series on discipleship? Well, the question should be asked, what is a disciple? Because when Christ left the disciples in charge, in Matthew 28, he said, I've got a job for you. It's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission, kind of capital letters like this. Is there, this is what you do as humanity. This is the reason humanity is not sucked up into heaven with Jesus. That we would go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, baptizing them. And so if we are going to make disciples, if our mission is to baptize and teach obedience to Christ, then we need to be really clear about what defines a disciple. How will we know one when we see one? How will we know that we ourselves are being the disciples we are claiming and trying to make? Because if you are not first a disciple of Christ, you will guaranteed never make one. You have to be a disciple first. And so this is a good time for us as a church, self-examination. I don't mean to preach any of this in judgment over you that you're, you know, you're a better disciple than me or I than you. That's not what it's about. It's for us to compare ourselves instead of to other Christians, that we compare ourselves to Scripture. How does Scripture define a disciple? Not how does Smith Falls define a disciple or Canada or CHRI or John MacArthur or anybody else, but the Scriptures. And let's be clear about what a disciple is. So our last session last week, the text laid out, that was Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, laid out what I would call probably more of the outward culture of discipleship. What do you mean by that? Well, first, we notice that it sprang from a deep understanding of God's plan, that all creation derives its name. Every family gets its name from God, which means the context of the gospel is that everything belongs to him. So anything that's outside of or in rebellion to God must, by definition, be affected by the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to subdue the nations in discipleship and return them to God. Because all things belong to him. Every family derives its name. So it springs from that understanding. But what we really caught on to last week was how it manifested itself. So if you really understand the gospel, if you really understand discipleship in Christ, it manifests itself in how we treat each other. That can be very convicting because we talked last week about a shallow definition of discipleship, which involves listening to lots of sermons, getting lots of Bible knowledge, and then trying to sin less. I'll just be more pure. That'll make me a better disciple. I'll think less swear words in my head. I'll get less angry. I'll be more patient. Those are important things. Those are important parts of sanctification. But a disciple, we realized, lives <clears throat> by definition in community in a body with other believers. And if you don't have that togetherness, you don't have a, a definition of discipleship that the Bible acknowledges. There's no such thing as a disciple isolated from the local church, other believers. 
So that was kind of the outward culture. It was all about patience and bearing with each other. Something that's not always easy to do, but it's a call of, our, of the gospel because it reflects how Jesus related to us. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't deserve his fellowship. But he came in. He, he drew close to us. He brought us in. And he bears with our weakness every single day. So how nothing is it for us to bear with each other's weaknesses? So this week, we're going to dive deeper. This week is almost kind of a pivot point. It's not a lot of bullet points like do this, do this, do this. It's not like that. This week, we're going to dive into what I would call the historic and theological position of the Christian disciple. And that's specifically how it relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus, or what sometimes in Christianity we call the finished work of Jesus. If anyone ever says the finished work of Jesus, they usually are talking about the death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, his going up into heaven. We call that the finished work of Jesus because on the cross he cried out, it is finished. And then we realize that God accepted that. God received Christ back into heaven, which proved that the work was finished, right? Proved he could go up, proved he could be reunited with his father in heaven. And so that's the basic difference between last week and this week. That last week was more of the outward culture, what we'd expect on the surface. This week, we're going to look a little bit more into our position as disciples and where it comes from, who we really are and what we are really about in terms of our direction of our lives. So our outline is kind of basic. Uh, there's three points. Number one, each disciple is unique in Christ. Number two, Christ won the authority to give gifts to his disciples. It's number two. Number three, the gifts of the disciples are given to advance Jesus' authority. So you see that, that his authority is what gave him the ability to give us gifts and our gifts then are an extension of his authority. So those are our three points. So number one, our text shows us that each disciple is unique in Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we really emphasized the oneness, the unity of Christian disciples, that we are one. We are made one body, uh, one family, one people. We're to dwell with and engage with one another. But then in verse 7, so that we don't think that God has somehow just saved this big blob, that he relates to just this big organism or great organizational machine, Verse seven, it says, but to each he gave grace. Verse seven, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So that's a contrast. That indicates, indicates a great contrast from last week. That was all about together and bearing with each other and being one. But on the flip side of that coin, Christ also gave each individual Christian grace. He bestowed grace upon each of us who are in Christ. He gave a specific measure of grace. So this is emphasizing the distinctness and the uniqueness of each person inside that group. And so we are not impersonally swallowed up. And I, I, I forget who I was speaking to, but I talked about the reality that you, you become a new creature when you're saved by Christ. You are renewed and you are given a new nature but you remain you. And I think that is really cool. I think that's, that, 
um, that confirms the intention of God's creation, that he did not make a mistake when he made you any more than he made a mistake when he made me. He didn't. We are all born in sin and we need to be baptized in Christ to be made new, but we remain ourselves. We remain the people with the gifts and the, the tendencies and the personalities that he gave us. And so who you are in Christ can be made useful for him. And so we are not only given individual gifts and grace, but he relates to each Christian individually. In other words, you are given a personal relationship with Christ. I don't emphasize that a whole lot um, through a lot of my preaching because that's been really, I think, overemphasized in the last 20 years of Christianity that it's all about your personal relationship with Jesus. And so people think that the church is kind of like this extra thing. Oh, you can be a great Christian and if you're a really, really good Christian, you'll go to church. Well, then those are for like the really committed ones. No, that's all part of the package. But Christ does, in fact, relate to us individually, uniquely. When you get saved, you are the person being saved. You are the one coming into a right, reconciled relationship with God. And there's no mistake in that. And so it says that we are given grace. Now, that word grace means a favorable uh, disposition towards God, that God looks on us favorably, that he gives us a positive outlook when he looks at us, and that's because of the way Christ has stood in between us and God, and when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And so we receive favor. This word grace also indicates a freeness, a freeness of his gift. Christians don't have to go around earning this with God. It's free. It's freely given. It's, it's literally grace. It's undeserved. We don't deserve it in the first place, and so there's no way we can earn anything good from God. So he gives us this, this freeness. And it says, he gave us grace according to the gift of Christ. Well, when Christ set, uh, left the earth, he promised one great gift. There was one thing he, he promised that would come. It was the Holy Spirit. He called it the helper. Christ made one great promise. He said, if I go, I will send my helper. And so we can recognize that these gifts given to individuals pertain to the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit with us. That God sends his own spirit to be inside of each individual so that we could exercise spiritual usefulness for God. Isn't that an amazing gift? Talk about being repurposed for God. And so in this grace, God looks upon us favorably. It's a position of acceptance. That God looks on you with favor. Grace is given each person. It's also freely given. It's a passive verb in the Greek language here. And it's good. It's passive, meaning we receive it. We do not take it. We do not go looking and, and, and scavenge it. God gives it to us freely and we passively receive it. It's also something that happened in time past. And that's going to be important in our text this morning is that this is very historically rooted. It happened at a time. He says, to each one grace was given. Past tense. We're not waiting for these gifts. They have already been given to the church. 
And part of our discipleship is to walk into them. And we'll talk about that in future weeks. But a disciple discovers and uses their gifts uh, enthusiastically. That's part of discipleship, but that's ahead of us. The point is that they have come to us, that they were free, and that they came because of God's favorable outlook on you, his acceptance of you. So that's the first thing we need to make sure that we understand as disciples of Christ is that we do not invite people into a system that needs them. We do not invite people into an organization uh, that needs their contribution. We do not invite people into a, you know, quote unquote, a global movement so that they can identify as being on the right side of history. We invite people into a personal encounter with the living God through Christ. Every Christian, and we said this last week, must be self-aware of their Christian faith. It cannot be, um, you cannot be unaware of your salvation because it is personal. Christ has personal regard for you. And so we invite people to make disciples. We say, you, you can come to Christ and receive grace. You can be freely given his gift. And so it's right to emphasize that it's not enough just to be a part of the group. It's not just enough to hang around with great Christians. You must be, you must have individual favor with God, unique regard from God in a favorable sense. And so that's the first part is that each disciple is unique in Christ. Number two, and this is where we really get into some historic and theological background, and this is so cool. Christ gained the authority to give gifts. That's number two in our, in our outline. Christ gained or won the authority to give these gifts. Well, how do you, how do you figure out? How do you mean by that? Well, in verse eight, Paul uses this word, therefore it says, this is very common in, in the New Testament to say, just as the scriptures said, or therefore the scriptures say. This is always a reference to the Old Testament the older word from God, spoken of before the time of Christ coming. Therefore, it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's a reference from Psalm 68, written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. What Paul is saying is if you want to understand what happened when Christ gave gifts, it's spoken of in the Old Testament. You can understand this through Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a beautiful psalm. You should read it this afternoon. But what that is telling us is that this is an event. This is something that happened in history that played a significant role in changing the course of human history. Psalm 68, and I'm going to Turn there for just a minute because I want to read to you in the context so that you see that Paul is not just twisting it. He's not just pulling a verse out and saying, oh, that sounds a lot like it. In your Bibles, you have a translation from the original Hebrew. Psalm 68, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered. That's how that opens. God's enemies shall be scattered when he arises. Okay, that's the context. Think of that. And then down in verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, meaning in your wake. 
and receiving gifts among men. Listen to this, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So this is fulfilled. What Paul is saying in Ephesians is that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his finished work. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul has already covered the reality that when Christ went to heaven, he received authority. He received a unique and new kind of authority that was hitherto unseen in history. It says that he went up on a throne and he received a name that is above every name. Now, when it says he received a name, does that mean Christ was less God than before or less authoritative before? No, but nobody knew the name Jesus before. That was concealed in the Old Testament. Nobody knew his name was Jesus Christ. They knew it was Christ, Messiah, but they didn't know his name was Jesus. The Aramaic version of Joshua, the deliverer in the Old Testament. And so Christ received this name above every name that will ever be named in this age or the age to come, meaning no authority will ever eclipse Jesus. He has gained an authority that will never be eclipsed by any human government or authority. Isaiah chapter nine says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So his authority now is in place. It is established and it happened in history. It happened around 33, 34 AD. He set up his kingdom. He began ruling from heaven over his kingdom. Now we have this, when he ascends on high, he led host, a host of captives. What's going on there? That's not a doctrine we talk a whole lot about. What do you mean he led host, a host of captives? I used to think that that was talking about us, that we are Jesus' captives now. That's not what it's talking about. The language of captivity and captives is, again, something we have to understand from the Old Testament. Joshua, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 5 speaks of it. We're not going to reference that one. But in Isaiah 14, we get a really clear understanding, I think, of what the psalmist is referencing. The psalmist in Psalm 68 is thinking of this reality. For the Lord, this is Isaiah 14, 1, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and he will again choose Israel and he will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob and the peoples will take them and bring them into their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. That's what's happening with Christ. There's a promise that when God arises, his enemies will flee. There's a promise that God will establish Israel and, he, and Israel will rule over their former oppressors. There's a promise that the people who were once oppressed will gain freedom. They will gain authority. They will gain sovereignty and they will rule over their oppressors. What this text is saying is that Christ led this host of captives. That Christ took command of those who were oppressors. That Christ gained victory for Israel, for his people, which includes us. And so Christ, in his work, initiated the great tidal shift in human history 
I believe a tidal shift of authority, spiritual authority, shifted because of the work of Christ and his ascension to the throne, which again was God's acceptance of his work. Turn to Mark chapter three, if you would, for a minute. It's a few pages back. It's near the very beginning of your, of your New Testament. If you see red letters, you're close. I want you to look at Mark chapter three to understand what's going on here. Mark three twenty seven. Start of 23. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, these are the scribes, those who are at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem were authoritative. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus was just casting out demons. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Listen to this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. When he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives. What this text is teaching us is that when Christ died, rose, and ascended, he entered the strong man's house, the earth, the world. He bound Satan, the strong man, and he plundered his goods. He plundered the house of Satan. Satan's reign of darkness and deception over the earth was broken by Christ. Christ said, I am the light shining in the darkness. Christ said, when I am raised up, all men will come to me. In other words, the bondage that Satan had over humanity to deceive him, to keep him in darkness, was broken by Jesus Christ at the cross. He entered, he bound the strong man, and he plundered his goods. When he ascended on high, Christ was given a name above every name, which clearly includes Satan and Satan's false promise and Satan's false religion and Satan's deception. Christ's authority has risen to the top. All things are his. In the Great Commission, he said, all authority in heaven has been given to me. What do you mean given? It's been stripped from Satan who had a spiritual grip on the earth up until the advent of Jesus. Up until Jesus came, this was the reality. Christ said, because of his atoning work on the cross, now the authority is mine. So now to my disciples, I say to you, go and use my authority, preach in my name, disciple nations in my name, because Satan will no longer be able to keep them in darkness. This is why the gospel has spread globally. Satan no longer has a power to keep nations in darkness doesn't mean every single person will believe. No, the scripture doesn't promise that. But it does promise that everywhere the gospel goes, people will turn because Satan's authority has been destroyed. He roams around like a roaring lion hungry for a meal. He does still work. But his authority has been bound and stripped. And Christ now has it. So when he defeated sin at the cross, Jesus Christ took with him in his captivity, our captors, 
Who's our oppressor? Who is our captor but sin and death and shame? Christ led them off in captivity and gave you and granted you freedom. Now, I just want to say one more word about this land imagery because it talks about establishing you in your land. Now, that's still important. We, we don't believe that God is giving us you know, this narrow plot in Smith's Falls or anything. We believe that the whole earth is the inheritance of the saints, right? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So the whole earth belongs to the redeemed of God, which is, again, is why we have authority to go and make disciples because it all belongs to Christ. But land imagery is important in terms of becoming a disciple in this company of the redeemed. And I'll give you an analogy. In Canada, when Parliament was set up, 1867, in order to become a senator, a senator is the second chamber, it's the higher chamber. When laws are made, it, they pass through the Senate, and the Senate um, gives it a, they call it a sober second thought to make sure this law is good for the nation, to make sure it doesn't have any f- fatal flaws. So there's dramatic influence that a senator has on the laws of Canada. In order to become a senator in 1867, you had to own at least $4,000 worth of property. Own it, not have a mortgage on it. So that excludes almost all of us. We don't own our houses, but you had to own land. It was yours to do with it what you pleased. And you also had to have a net worth of at least $4,000. Those numbers have not been changed to this day. So any of us probably could become senators today, um, but those numbers are unchanged. Now, why would that be? Why could you only be somebody who is a lawmaker if you owned property? Doesn't that seem, in our, especially in our kind of egalitarian world, well, that's unfair. It excludes the poor. But there's a reason. Because if you owned land and if you had net worth, you had a vested interest in the success of that country. You're not going to get in there and start making revolutionary laws that are going to overturn the hard-earned realities of parliament or whatever. And so you had to have a vested interest. You were not a slave. You were not transient. You were not newly there and soon to be gone. So only people who had a long-term investment and interest in the country could have influence in building up its laws. Now, how does that apply to us? What I believe the reality in the biblical sense for us is that Christ has established us and he has enfranchised us. He has freed us, so to speak, in our own land from our oppressors. And then he gave us gifts, which in my analogy would be like the lawmaking. So he gave us gifts in order to start perpetuating his authority in this land. In a a way, he has made us all senators in his kingdom. He has enfranchised us. He has freed us from our slavery. So now we are all stakeholders in Christ's kingdom. We are landowners in Christ's kingdom. You are inheritors of the whole earth. And so this gift has been given to you. The Holy Spirit and your spiritual gifts in order to perpetuate his authority. And that's my third point. What are the gifts for? And so he ascended on high. He led host a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, this is important. Now it's in brackets which might have meant that you skipped it when you read it. It's like, oh, in brackets, that's just extra info. But listen, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill 
all things. And then in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. So there's this notion that because of his ascension, the psalm doesn't include it, but if somebody ascends, they must have had to have been down here first, right? You cannot be up and also ascend. You have to have descended first. That's the incarnation. That's God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. He descended into the lower parts that is the earth. He lived as a boy. Mary and Joseph as his mother and father, as Leah pointed out this morning. He dealt with the harsh realities of the climate. He dealt with the harsh realities of, of humanity, relational struggles. He dealt with everything. He descended into the lowest parts. He experienced everything that you and I experience. And then he ascended to be above all things. So we know that in heaven, his name is above all things. But I think what that has led a lot of us to believe for a lot of time in our lives is that his authority is just heavenly. Heaven is just a really great place because there he's on his throne. But the brackets here tell us different. No, 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 no. He doesn't just reign in heaven. He reigns from heaven over what? The whole earth, that he might fill all things. In other words, his presence and incarnation on the earth was his claim over the earth. It was saying, this belongs to me as much as heaven does. Here and now belongs to me. This dirt, this water, these trees, these people belong to me. When Christ lived on the earth, he did things like he calmed the storm. Why was that? To prove his authority, that the earth belongs to him. He made a fish swallow a shekel and bring it up to the surface to prove to people that he had authority. When they were looking for a tax and he said, pull your net out and he grabbed a fish and it had a shekel in its mouth. I mean, this is child's play for Christ. It's nothing because he owns everything. He has authority over it. When he calmed the waves of the sea, his disciples said, surely this is the son of God. Surely this is the one who has authority over all creation. So when it says that he descended first, that is to make his claim over the earth. And if you think about it, the earth is the theater. It's the stage of redemption. We have a stage here. This is where the drama takes place here at the station theater. In the redemptive drama of God, it takes place on the stage of the earth. Go to the nations and make disciples. Don't just sit in your own spiritual mind and pray for disciples. Go, fill the earth in a way. The same thing he said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. He said that to the apostles. Go fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply spiritual Christian disciples and subdue the nations to obey me. The Great Commission is so wrapped up in this reality of the ascension of Christ and the authority that he has over the earth. His, his authority is not confined to heaven. When the disciples asked him how to pray, he said, this is how you should pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven then becomes the model for earth. 
What are we looking forward to here on earth? We are looking to the increase of Jesus' government. We are looking to the advance of his kingdom. We are looking to a greater degree of influence of heaven over this earth. Now, is that to close my eyes and pretend that sin and suffering and wickedness don't happen? No. Men will still live in rebellion. They will still hate each other and hate God. But God will not be passive in this. And the, and. It falls to the church to advance the gospel, to convert sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit. This reality, the authority of of Jesus Christ, is not a thing to be pushed into the future. It's not to be pushed into, well, when we get to heaven, it's all going to be perfect. Yes, it will. But what do you think your life is about right now? If God just wanted you in paradise, you'd be there but you're here now. So what do we do? We advance the authority and reign of Christ where we are through the gospel. Our motto at our church is joining Christ to advance liberty in Smith Falls. We are advancing a a real kingdom that takes place in the hearts and minds of people and transforms their surroundings because of how they live. Christians are called to do good works in order that people would see who God is. Everything we do now is an extension of the authority of Christ. And it does begin now, my friends. Discipleship begins now. And our mandate is clear now to make disciples to subdue the nations. You may not go to another nation to make disciples. That's okay. We have a lot of nation right here who doesn't know Jesus yet. There's a lot of nation right here in our backyard. And so he goes on in verse 11. I'll close very shortly. He talks about apostles and prophets. So he, he went up. He gained authority. We are reminded in brackets that his authority is not confined to heaven. It is also present here and now through the Holy Spirit, through his apostles, prophets, through his disciples. And then he specifically names a couple of the gifts. This is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. These are what the Bible calls, or theologians call, the public gifts. Public, meaning they get the most amount of public attention. I have one of the public gifts in the church. I'm a pastor, okay? So I, myself, my gift is included here in this passage. Yours may not be in these five gifts that are named. Your gift may not be named in these five. You may not have one of the public gifts in the church, That is absolutely wonderful. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is loaded with spiritual gifts that are incredibly important and even critical to the life of the church. Many of you are wonderful in hospitality. Many of you are wonderful in administration. Many of you are wonderful in relationships and greeting. Many of you are, um, are, are talented in finance and planning and organization and all of those things. Those are all spiritual gifts. Did you know that? So these five public gifts are named first. Why? Because again, I think there's a historic precedent here. There's a historic moment where the apostles and prophets were given first to the church. That's most important at that time, especially because if you all send a bunch of administrators stand up in the early church, you don't think you probably have a lot of converts. Okay, administrators and bookkeepers, probably not as strong in preaching and sharing the gospel. That's okay. 
Once the church got established and meals started happening and tithing and giving started happening, money started flowing in. It was like, we need other gifts too. We learned in Acts chapter six, the church doesn't survive alone on good preaching. It must have all of the gifts to function well as a little city. But first, Christ gave the apostles and the prophets. Why? Because the gospel had to go out. They had to start making converts, especially in an age of heavy persecution where a lot of Christians were killed. So the church multiplied very rapidly at the start through the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, which were both critical ministries. And I would say especially during the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is a period in history We are now in the new covenant 2,000 years later, but at that time, it was a passing of the old covenant into the new covenant. And the apostles and prophets were kind of like the stewards. They were the ministers of this transition, walking the church, which was mostly Jewish, mostly familiar with the older covenant of sacrifice and circumcision, walking them through to how they are to live in the new covenant to teach them the ways of Christ and how Christ fulfilled the requirement of the law. And now, as followers of Christ, we live in a right relationship with God through this new covenant. And so these are these stewards, the apostles and the prophets. Again, the New Testament had not been written at this time. Most of the first century, not most of it, but a good chunk of the first century, the church existed without any New Testament From Matthew to Revelation, no New Testament. So they relied heavily on the Old Testament scriptures and on prophets. People who would speak forth the word of God, which largely most of that became the scriptures. Paul, Barnabas, um, the other apostles, Peter. Okay, the other ones who wrote, John, they relied on that word from God You'll notice in some of the earlier books in the New Testament, it speaks of prophecy quite heavily. You know, let the prophets speak and, and examine what they say. And in the books that were written later, there's a much heavier emphasis on the reading and listening and believing the scriptures, which included the New Testament. Because once that was compiled, the church said, oh, here are our documents. Here are the things that we can teach and believe and help each other walk in. So there's the apostles and the prophets. And then... There's three other gifts here. He gave, a, he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now evangelists, they take the message of the apostles and the prophets and they go. They're like runners. They're like angels, like messengers. They take this gospel and they run with it. Some of you might have an evangelistic heart, which is a, you just feel, you just gotta get out of here and go tell somebody about Jesus. You're in the grocery store lineup and you can't wait to drop Christ. You might be an evangelist. You're a runner. You take the message and you run. You go into the places that, do, that, that does not have it. That's an evangelist. It's also important. It's like those, those are the people who have wheels. You know, they just got wheels. They're, they're going, they're moving. And it's amazing to watch. I do not have those wheels. I am more like a big heavy chair kind of guy. I'll be in one place for a long time. Well, you got a car, so you're mobile. Yeah, I know, I know. But then he also gave shepherds and pastors. That's where I find myself. Those are the ones who, they take the converts. The evangelist is long gone. The prophet is gone. The the apostle is gone planting a new church. Who stays with the new converts? Who stays with the new Christians? 
the shepherds and the pastors. Those are the ones who sit down with people long-term and walk them through life. Going through the scriptures, praying together, going through the hard stuff. That's the pastor and the shepherd. And that's, that's where God has put me in the church. And I'm thankful for that role. But those are those who have authority that is given from that foundational authority of the apostles who wrote the scriptures and gave them to us, laid a foundation. We take it and we say, let's live according to this. So here's the reality. Our tangible, our, as in O-U-R, tangible and local gifts in the church are proof of Jesus' investment in his kingdom. Christ gave gifts to men and women as proof that he is fully in on this plan. This is his plan of salvation, the ministry of reconciliation through the church. He said, I'm going to give you gifts. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you shepherds, pastors, scriptures. I'm going to give you everything you need. Christ has set us up for this ministry until he comes back. We are fully equipped. We are fully equipped for the job. It's a hard job. It's a scary job. Make disciples. Go and preach to the lost and then disciple them. Welcome them into your church and start living your life with them. Start showing them how to obey. Start showing them the scriptures. Start walking through it with them. Deal with their failings. Strive with them. Endure with them. Bear with them. But we have everything we need. Everything we possibly need. We lack nothing for this job. You may not feel confident every day when you go out Monday to Saturday. You may not feel confident in your gifts or your calling. And then you come in on Sunday and you're like, why is Tim so confident in his calling? My gift is to make you ready to use your gifts. That's my job. My job is to equip the saints. So for me, I go through the scriptures and I study them and I, I study them a lot. So I have massive confidence in what I'm saying about God's word. Am I always uh, this clear spoken, as you can see? <laughs> Am I always this confident or articulate in the marketplace? No. I have prepared this message for you to equip you. But when you and I go out into the marketplace together, we're a heck of a lot more similar. I don't always have the words. I don't always know what to say. I don't always share the gospel when I ought to. But we are working toward that. And I'm excited because when I study the scriptures, it tells me the path. It gives us the path forward. It tells us what we're supposed to be doing and how to get there. So that gets me excited. And then I struggle to apply it and do it the same as you. But the point is that we are living for Christ together. We're living for Christ together. Our failures and our successes ought to both be celebrated and work together. So the reality is that a disciple of Christ is free from bondage to sin. That's what our text showed us. At the cross, he led host a host of captives, our oppressors. He took them captive. So you are now free in Christ. You are now free. Free to what? 
by God's grace, continually live a life of spiritual worship, spiritual sacrifice, Romans 12 says. In other words, your freedom is not for you. It's for Christ. It's to advance his authority and his lordship and his kingdom. And we are to use all that God has given to us in order to do that. And that is the gospel of Christ, the gift of the spirit, the gift of the church to each other. And so I ask, what are we doing with our freedom? What are we doing with our freedom? As a church, as individuals, are we seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom? Are we standing up against evil and wickedness and sin in your workplace? Are you tearing down strongholds that are raised up against Jesus Christ? You know why? Because you have the authority to. All authority belongs to Christ. So my friends, you have authority to advance his kingdom. You have authority to speak his name. You have authority to make disciples. We are not out in culture begging for a seat at the table. Oh, please listen to us. Please listen to us. We might have some good ideas. Our king is the lawmaker. He is the Lord of the nations. He is the Lord over the church. So we preach his lordship. Some will turn, some will not. But we have authority in the gospel sense because of Christ. And so my friends, I just want to embolden you with that. You have the authority of the living God because Christ dwells in you through his spirit. Christ left and gave authority to his church. So let's use it in every way that the Lord leads us. Let us seek new opportunities. You know what one of the most practical ways you can respond to this sermon is? Learn to pray for opportunity. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but it is, it is so powerful. I forget to all the time. But when we pray for opportunities, God gives them to speak his name, to advance his kingdom. It might be a good work. It might be picking up a hitchhiker. It might be bringing somebody a loaf of bread. It might be cleaning up some garbage on the street. It might be a time to share the gospel with a city counselor or with a garbage man or with a door-to-door person. It might be the chance to love a child who doesn't have a stable home. It might be the chance to adopt. It might be the chance... the, The world is full of opportunities for us to assert and advance the reign of Christ. But are we seeking them because we are free to do so? See, what freedom does is it, we are no longer occupied with serving our former slave master, which is sin. You are no longer a slave to sin, which means you're a slave to righteousness. You can work for Christ now. And so just pray for opportunity. And then when you think, gosh, I'm not qualified to actually do the opportunity he gave me. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You are qualified. If you have Christ, if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are qualified for whatever God has asked you to do. It may seem insignificant and you may seem in your mind totally stumbling over words and awkward and maybe you're not that good a baker and somebody you know, needs a loaf of bread. Who cares? Because by God's sovereignty, those opportunities may lead to gospel repentance in Christ, new life coming to families just in the smallest ways, in the biggest ways, public gifts, private gifts, good works, preaching. He's doing it all. And he's chosen the church.
And so this is, I mean, like I said, there's no neat and tidy bullet point for what a disciple is. But this is the mindset of a disciple, that we are free and that we are enfranchised to influence his kingdom by our spiritual gifts. Let me pray.